Welcome to Time to Talk Science and Medicine, a new podcast designed to highlight translational researchers from Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. The main goal of these podcasts will be to focus on the researcher, to find out where they've come from, what motivates them, and how their research will change the world. We're also trying to find out about the person behind the dangerous idea. My name is Dr. Charlie Heinmarch, and I'm a genomics researcher at Queen's. And my name is Dr. Stephen Archer, and I'm a cardiologist and researcher and the head of the Translational Institute of Medicine at Queen's. Today, we're joined by Dr. Paula James, who is an expert in the diagnosis and management of people with bleeding disorders. Dr. James is also an active research scientist who is trying to understand the mechanisms of these diseases and to look for new therapeutics to treat them with. Of particular focus of Dr. James's clinic and research is women's health. Dr. James is a public advocate for the education of people regarding issues around menstruation and is the lead of a website called letstalkperiod.ca, which hosts a self-administered bleeding assessment tool to help women who are concerned about abnormal bleeding. Dr. James, thanks for coming into our show today. Uh, and as Charlie just mentioned, you're both a doctor and a scientist. Can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you get started down this path? So I went to, I was born and I grew up in Saskatchewan. And I went to university there and it was long enough ago that you could get into medical school after two years, which I was lucky enough to do. So I started med school when I was 19. Um, finished medical school, did internal medicine in Saskatchewan. And then I had realized along the way that I was more interested in blood than anything else. So not really any major light bulb, just I found myself paying more attention if people were talking about blood. I think the coagulation system is particularly elegant, the way it's evolved over time. Um, and I had a really important mentor uh, named Dr. Sheila Harding, who was one of my teachers when I was in medical school in Saskatchewan and also during my residency. And she was a, and still is a benign hematologist. And that had a big impact on me in the things that I was interested in and what I thought might be fulfilling for a patient um, population to look after and for a career. The research part came later. Um, and so I actually hadn't done any research as part of this kind of accelerated path into medical school and, you know, sort of just putting my head down then and doing my residency and my clinical training. And research happened after. Um, I knew I wanted to be an academic physician, and I'm married to a physician who had some training that was going to take a few years longer than mine. And so I ended up spending almost three years in a postdoc fellowship with a very um, talented and um, excellent researcher here at Queen's named Dr. David Lillycrap, and got completely hooked on research, on the joy of discovery and on the process of asking and answering questions. So me becoming a researcher was a bit of a surprise to me, um, but has worked out brilliantly well in terms of my career and the things that I get to do every day. Yeah, it is sort of interesting when you discover for the first time how knowledge is created and that it's not all in some book and that little old you from Saskatchewan can actually contribute to the canon of knowledge that is sort of medicine today. Yeah, it's it's very rewarding. And I don't use the term joy lightly, it's joyful. 
Yeah, it's nice to discover that secret that no one else knows. Well, back to you, Charlie. Yeah, so, I, I mean, with res respect to the secret that nobody else knows, what, what is the big dangerous idea that you investigate in your research laboratory? I, I think you alluded it, to it in the intro, which is that we should talk about periods. Um, heavy menstrual bleeding is a marker of an underlying bleeding disorder in people who menstruate, and that's been overlooked and minimized and stigmatized. And I think starting to have open and accurate conversations about what a normal period is supposed to look like, um, what abnormal bleeding looks like, who needs additional medical attention has been really important and rewarding, both in my clinical practice, but also in the research that we do. So I, I read on your website, website uh, letstalkperiod.ca, that one in a thousand people might actually have a bleeding disorder. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about what these bleeding disorders might mean for the public and, and, and how a woman might understand this better in herself? Yeah, so if you start talking to people in the general public, everybody's heard of hemophilia. It's a royal disease. Queen Victoria was a carrier of hemophilia. People understand, uh, I think, intuitively that the word hemophilia means somebody with a bleeding disorder. Hemophilia is orders of magnitude less common than the most common inherited bleeding disorder, which is von Willebrand disease, which very few people have ever heard of, um, but which affects, like I said, orders of magnitude more people. It just tends to cause the most significant symptoms in women. Um, heavy menstrual bleeding, postpartum hemorrhage, heavy bleeding after childbirth. And those are things that we've overlooked in our society and that there have been sexist attitudes about over the years. And so I think that's led into that statement we have on the homepage of Let's Talk Period that, you know, one in a thousand people has a bleeding disorder, but far fewer than that actually know it. No, and I think that I just want to qualify. When you say heavy menstrual bleeding, what does that mean for a woman? Because I, I'm pretty sure that a woman takes her information maybe for her mother or from the people around her, which may normalize heavy bleeding in that person. Yeah, so a few things that are red flags of heavy menstrual bleeding, which would, would be a, a period or bleeding that goes on for longer than a week out of every month. Uh, somebody who's having to change their sanitary protection more than every hour. Um, somebody who has accidents at night, so who is bleeding through onto the sheets at night, and somebody who's iron deficient. Iron deficiency is a huge public health issue amongst people who menstruate. 40% of those individuals are iron deficient at some point during their reproductive years, and that has a huge impact on quality of life, on their ability to learn, on their ability to work. And it's about as dead simple as it gets in medicine to diagnose and treat. So we're just trying to raise um, awareness about all of that and make people think about what their own experience has been like. And if they have any of those red flags, take the self-bat, the self-administered bleeding assessment tool that's on the website and see if you need to take it further and, and get tested to see if there's something that we could treat that's okay, underlying that's it. perfect. I'm just going to, just for the audience once again, that's letstalkperiod.ca. Yeah, it is interesting that uh, people, I think, are hampered from understanding this, not because of they're not understanding a rare disease like hemophilia or a medium rare disease like von Willebrand's, but they're just uncomfortable talking about women having periods and bleeding. And I'm not sure if women share that, but we had a little talk before this 
just even about the consequences, uh, this is a little off topic, but the consequences for women of the cost of being a woman in, in that regard. And uh, you were telling us about, is it sort of menstrual poverty or what's the right terminology for this issue? Yeah, period poverty or menstrual poverty. Uh, and that ties into all of this, that the fact that half of the population menstruates for many years of their life is under-recognized, undervalued in our society. and. Um, there was a Canadian study that was done recently uh, by some excellent colleagues on the East Coast that showed that period poverty affects up to half of people who menstruate at some point, that they can't afford the products that you need to care for yourself, to be hygienic. And if you think about it, other things that we need to take care of ourselves publicly, a bathroom and toilet paper, there's no question about those being freely and widely available. And yet, period products have become this thing that you, um, when you buy it at the drugstore, you hide it in your bag that, you know, if you have it in your purse, you don't want anyone to see that. Like, it's there's all this shame and stigma around it that I just think is unnecessary and unwarranted and unhelpful. And some countries have actually moved to make public funding available for that, I understand. I'm not sure where that is in Canada, but you're, uh, which country was it that had uh, made this move recently? Yeah, so in Scotland, they've actually made period products freely available to their population, which I think is just brilliant. And in Canada, we're starting to see it within some companies um, and within some institutions. And we're part right now of a conversation to make period products freely available at Queen's University. And I, we're a little behind, actually, at Queen's. Other universities have done this already. Shocker. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that can, that can stay in. <laughs> that was a heartfelt commentary. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's, so we'll, we'll maybe come to that. Uh, one thing I did want to move, this is a bit of a plug, but I think you're doing an intro for a visitor who's going to be talking on this topic. If if people don't get everything they want out of this blog, which seems highly unlikely, but should they want more, you're hosting a speaker? Yeah, so Dr. Jen Gunter, who I'm a huge fan, so it's such an honor um, to have been asked to participate. So she has um, a new book coming out about blood and the medicine and mythology around menstruation. And so I've been asked to host um, a book tour event that's happening here in Kingston uh, on February the 9th. And, and so excited uh, to get to meet her. I think her writing is very impactful. Um, and to hear, you know, about her inspiration for the book and, and what she thinks we should be doing to, to improve all of this. Okay, Dr. James, well, th thanks for that sidebar. And I just want you to maybe now tell us a little bit about what you consider your latest discovery. It doesn't have to be temporarily the latest, but just what's the thing that excites you the most and give us some details about that research. Yeah, so right now my lab is really focused on optimizing a protocol to isolate and culture human endometrial endothelial cells. So we're really interested in endothelial cells because we're interested in von Willebrand disease, which is caused by a lack or dysfunction of von Willebrand factor, which is a big clotting protein that we need to stop bleeding. Von Willebrand factor is made in our endothelium. So that's the connection there. And endothelial cells line all of our blood vessels. And if you think about it, the blood vessels in our uterus are so special and important and um, unique in the fact that they proliferate and shed every month. 
And the uterus is an organ that has figured out that kind of really dynamic physiology. It doesn't scar. There's no evidence of damage as part of this tissue repair process that's going on in this regeneration. And so we've been interested in looking at endothelial cells specifically from the uterus. The reason for that is that we think there has to be some local influence on why some people bleed more than others. If I look at two patients, both with von Willebrand disease, who maybe have circulating levels of von Willebrand factor that are identical, somebody might have the worst periods I've ever heard of and somebody might be able to manage. So we think there are probably uterine and local influences. So what we've been working on is a protocol to get those cells from a menstrual blood sample, which is so exciting because historically to get at those cells, you have to either have a surgical, a surgically removed uterus or an endometrial biopsy, um, which is painful and invasive and risky for a patient who has an underlying bleeding disorder. So if we can take this um, fluid that is garbage, it's waste, and do something useful with it, that's really exciting to us. And so we've, we've managed to isolate and culture endothelial cells from um, a menstrual cup sample. Yeah, and for people that are not uh, researchers or physicians, the problem with the blood draw, like from your arm, is you can't get, at least simply, you can't get endothelial cells. So this is, you suddenly have discovered a source which is available to half the population to actually get endothelial cells when they're shed just during a regular menstrual period and sort them out from all the other cells and blood that's in the menstrual and then be able to grow them in a laboratory and study them. Yeah, exactly. You're right about a peripheral blood sample. Um, you can't easily get endothelial cells, but you actually can if you take a large enough sample, probably very small numbers of endothelial progenitors that we all have circulating in our blood that are important for wound healing. Um, and you can isolate those and culture them. It takes a big volume of blood um, and doesn't always work. And so having access to endothelial cells that are organ-specific through another kind of sample is, is pretty cool. And, and without being too voyeuristic, so how is this actually collected then? Like, how do you, what does a woman do to give you that sample? Like, So you obviously couldn't do this if somebody was using a pad or a tampon because that absorbs all of the menstrual fluid. So it's one of the things that has become possible with the advent of a menstrual cup. So a menstrual cup is a, a small plastic shaped device that a woman inserts into the uterus and suctions onto the cervix, and there's space there that collects the menstrual blood as it flows out. And so what we ask um, research participants to do, and we've been so um, grateful for people who are willing to do this for us, and, and people have been excited about being part of this kind of research, we just get them to take the menstrual cup and to tip that fluid into a red cap conical tube um, that it's a very common piece of lab equipment. So rather than dumping that down the toilet, which is normally what would happen, and then a woman would clean out the menstrual cup and insert it back in, um, we just get them to, to pour that into a tube and give it to us. So it's kind of like an upside down diaphragm that's sort of a collector that you can use to store blood until it's put into culture. That's very cool. Yeah, exactly. 
then you can, in effect, use the, 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 the menstrual blood as a, a potential source of finding biomarkers for the diseases. Yeah, and that, that's a really exciting kind of next few steps to this. We've started to ask questions like, could we diagnose iron deficiency based on a blood sample? Nobody's looked at that. How does a ferritin from a menstrual sample compare to what we would see from a peripheral blood sample? Could I diagnose von Willebrand disease? from a menstrual blood sample and not actually have to ever do um, to poke somebody to take blood from their arm. Obviously, there's lots of comparator studies that we've got to do to to lay that groundwork and to validate that. But pretty recently, um, my husband, who's an incredible supporter of what I do, sent me an article that he came across about a company in the UK that is starting to look at menstrual blood as a substrate for biomarker research. And that was pretty exciting for us to think that, you know, if a company is starting to pay attention to this, there's probably business value and other value. And you're on the right track. Hopefully, yeah. You know, just before we move, I know Charlie has a question he wanted to ask you, but I guess just to close off on this idea, like, so if you discovered that someone had von Willebrand's disease, how would that help them? Like, so this is a cool way to do it and that's great, but what does it mean for the person themselves? Yeah, so for von Willebrand disease, we have a number of treatments that can help minimize or even prevent bleeding. But you have to make the diagnosis for us to go to that list of possibilities. So a medication called tranexamic acid, which is given by pills, another medication called desmopressin, which is injected. Um, we often use hormonal methods of trying to regulate somebody's period and decrease the amount of menstrual blood loss. In the worst cases, we infuse von Willebrand factor concentrate that has to be given intravenously, so it's a burdensome treatment. But what's really exciting in the von Willebrand disease world is there are lots of novel treatments coming, maybe subcutaneous injections that you give once a week or once every couple of weeks that can increase your clotting factor levels, decrease the amount of bleeding. So we have a whole list of things that we can try and new and exciting things on the horizon. We can absolutely make somebody's life better once we've made this diagnosis. Yeah, and so sometimes it's preventing inconvenience, like heavy periods, which is maybe more than an inconvenience, but, and then sometimes it's preventing someone from having life-threatening bleeding. So thank you very much. And obviously, we've worked together, so I'm, I'm familiar with some of your research. I'd just like to ask you to rephrase what you've just said, but within the understanding of, say, somebody who was at high school. Yeah, so inherited bleeding disorders... Um, there are a whole list of them, and they result in excessive and abnormal bleeding. For women, that means periods that are really far too heavy. Um, we're interested in studying the uterus and how that happens, what controls that, and instituting, giving people access to treatments, some of which are already available, some of which are being studied to make their lives better, to decrease the amount of bleeding that they have every month and make it easier for them to go to school and um, get a job and not be bleeding through all the time. So, so, so these conditions and these bleeding disorders, they, they actually affect younger people as well? Yeah, so these are all inherited, meaning that people are born with them. Um, and the manifestations of them change over the course of a person's life. Bleeding disorders that cause heavy menstrual bleeding are obviously relevant for people who have the potential to menstruate. Um, and so the bleeding symptoms that we see kind of shift. It also relates to 
what people are doing, you know? So if people are active in sports, they could be bruising more, they could be having bleeds into muscles and joints. Those things might shift over the course of a person's life. But for sure, um, bleeding disorders, our clinics are lifespan, you know, from the time babies are born until people are, um, are older and in the later stages of their lives, diseases cause problems and we've got treatments for them. So you mentioned that, uh, Dr. James, that research was joyful, but I know research is not always joyful. There are grants, there are rejected papers. So this question sort of, tell us about a bump in the road where either you lost lost the joy temporarily or questioned what you were doing. Have you had an experience like that you had to overcome? Yeah, and this isn't a unique answer. And uh, anybody else who's a researcher listening will feel the pain of what I'm going to say. But Last December, so December 2022, we had $6,000 left. Um, and I was very afraid that I was going to lose my research program, that I was going to have to lay off people who have worked with me my entire career, who are very expert and committed to what we do. It takes a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to run my lab, so $6,000 doesn't get us very far. Thankfully, we weathered that storm. The team really pulled together and we started writing grants at a faster rate than we normally do. Um, and we have survived that and um, have funding now that will last us the next couple of years and, and plans to get me through to retirement. But that was um, horrible. It was a horrible time to think that, you know, that People who have entrusted me with their professional careers might have to start looking somewhere else for a job. That is such a common story and painful. And I, I wrote a piece about it in the conversation and on my blog because it's, you know, the research funding in Canada has been flat for 20 years. The success rate of any given grant is only one in about six or seven. And most researchers are applying three times to get one grant. And there's a 20%, 23% cut in the grant funding. So it's a tough business to be a scientist, and it is sort of like a small business where the product is an idea. 100%. 100%. Yeah, and you talk about grant success rates. You know, earlier in my career, we probably had a grant success rate of about 50%, so we were writing double the number of grants that we would get. That's jacked up significantly, so we're writing three or four times the number of grants that we're getting now. Yeah, it's a lot of shots on goal. Yeah. So, I, and you know, I, I, again, as uh, Dr. Archer said, that this is a really common story for researchers, the idea that the pot runs dry. And however innovative or impactful the discoveries have been up to that point, sometimes it's all at risk. Um, I'm very pleased that you've weathered the storm and you're back on track. And, and, and I guess the, an obvious follow-up is what's next? How, how are you moving this forward to continued success, not only for your own lab, but also kind of like a, to be impactful for, uh, for, for the health of women? Yeah, that's a great question. We've got some really exciting projects uh, coming up. Projects that actually bring together all of the parts in a more synergistic way than we've done before of what we do. So we've got a project that we're getting up and running right now that brings together the bleeding assessment tool, the SELF-BAT, and the human endometrial endothelial cell project. So trying to look at how much people are bleeding um, and that we can quantify and measure that through the self-bat 
and then looking at what's happening in endometrial endothelial cells and make correlations between those things. So it's it's very kind of full circle in terms of the things that we've focused on in the last 20 years and putting it all together in a way that should be synergistic and, and useful and exciting. You're, you're closing the loop on translational medicine. Yeah, That's yeah. fantastic. Exactly right. Uh, so thank you very much, Dr. James, for taking time to speak to us today about your clinic and your research. But before we wrap this podcast up, we'd actually like our audience to get to know the person behind the research. So Stephen and I have prepared some more fun questions that hopefully will uh, will challenge you and, and give some interesting answers. Uh, and, uh, so, so if you're ready, Dr. Archer. Yeah, so I, I was going to ask you the first question, but you sort of answered that. Who is your sort of mentor and inspiration? Although you can elaborate, certainly. But I think maybe I'll skip on and just ask you, so when you're not busy being a scientist, researcher, and hematologist, what do you do in your spare time? So I've turned into a big walker. You will recall, Dr. Archer, because you were the department head of medicine at the time and very graciously granted me a mini sabbatical in the fall of 2021. Yeah, I remember that. And during that time, I started walking a lot um, and I've carried it on. So I walk, I'm a 10,000 steps a day person, but I have a son who's an elite athlete. And so he always challenges me to say, well, then you have to do better. Like, next year, what are you going to aim for? So I'm closing in on 12,000 steps a day um, this year. And it's so good for me physically, obviously, but it's so good for my sanity too. Um, And I will very often walk with my family, with my husband. um, But sometimes I walk and I'm listening to music. So I, it's not so secret anymore, but I have a very significant love of Broadway. um, And my oldest son is a very talented singer. And so a very fun night in our house, I also love to cook and cook with my husband, um, is making supper with Broadway tunes. um, And we're all singing along as best we can. And my, my oldest son sounds completely beautiful and incredible. And I'm a terrible singer, so I kind of stay in the background. As, uh, as I say, that sounds fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's, 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 here's a good question, especially for maybe our, our, our younger audience. If you could talk to your 18-year-old self, what kind of advice would you offer her? That's such a good question. It's funny as a woman in medicine and science to think about this, because honestly, when I was 18, I was... I didn't understand um, what I was going to end up being up against, and I actually think that's a good thing. It never occurred to me that I couldn't do this. It never occurred to me that I was entering a male-dominated profession and that there were going to be challenges from that. So I think I would just encourage her to carry on. Um, You know, she had things she wanted to do, and did well in school and so felt like I had opportunities. Um, And I've been very fortunate, you know, that there's been a path that led me to the job I have now and the career I have. So I think I would just encourage her to carry on. Fantastic. That's that's, that's beautiful advice. So I'm going to skip to a question. You mentioned uh, that you like to cook uh, with your husband, Dale, and hang out and sing Broadway songs. So what's your favorite meal? And can you actually cook it yourself or do you rely on someone else for that? Oh, no, I'm a decent cook, actually. Um, My mother is a very good cook. And when I was growing up, um, everything I learned in the kitchen, I learned from my mom just by her showing me how to do it. And we're not chefs. Like 
my knife skills are not great, but um, I'm not. As a department head, I'm happy to hear yeah, that. Yeah, former, yeah. De- former department head, I'm <laughs> yeah, happy to hear that. that. Yeah, that I don't have strong knife That's skills. Um, but I'm not afraid of the kitchen, and I understand how to read a recipe. I understand how to cook. And um, yeah, so what are roast chickens a big favorite um, to make roast chicken, which actually is super easy. That's not that complicated. Uh, lately, we've been making butter chicken, you know, trying to be a little bit more interesting with some of the meals that we're cooking. Um, we had a great dinner on Saturday night. I made, uh, it's a mustard chicken recipe with green beans. My green beans are very good. Roast potatoes uh, and cheese buns, which my youngest basically says it's not a good meal if there aren't cheese buns. So Sounds yummy. It was tasty. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Okay, so, and this is possibly the most important question that you're going to get asked today, or maybe even this week. What is your favorite cartoon character, and which cartoon character best represents you? And that might be one and the same, or that might be different. Yeah, I I, I meant to warn you, actually, before we started, that I wasn't going to have a good answer for this. I'm not much of of a cartoon person, actually. I mean, maybe we watched... Co- maybe we should assign her one. Maybe yeah. she should... Maybe we should... <laughs> no, so, no. Yeah, no, 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 do it. Do it. I'd be so interested. And then I'm going to tell you like a funny, weird story mm. after you assign me one. Well, let's see. Well, of famous cartoon characters, uh, I like... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, and this is like guilty pleasure while exercising on a machine at home. Uh, the Supergirl series. So, uh, so she or, or Superwoman, she flies through the air, solves crimes, and it's, I think there are eight series. So I think that would be good. Plus, she get a cool outfit. If you yeah, know, that's pretty cool. She's not a She's a human being, but she represents the cartoon character Superwoman. Yeah, I loved Wonder Woman when I was a little kid. So yeah, maybe I'll say Wonder Woman. I really thought she was very very spectacular and special and i loved the bracelets and her invisible flying her invisible spaceship we'll give you that that's perfect perfect (laughs) nail down thank you dr james for coming in to talk to us today and helping us understand a little bit more about your research anyone who would like to know more about bleeding disorders or to access the self-administered bleeding assessment tool can visit letstalkperiod.ca on behalf of dr archer and myself i'd like to thank you for taking time to get to know one of queen's university's translational researchers if you enjoyed this episode and would like to know more about queen's university translational medicine research or share this podcast you can search for time to talk science and medicine wherever you normally look for podcasts